0: Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. Joining me today is Jason Brennan, the Flanagan family professor at Georgetown University. He's the author of many books. He's been on the show a few times. And if you listen to the last episode covering his book, When All Else Fails, you will have learned that his lifetime fistfight record is 23 and 1, right? That's good, Jay. And also Philip W. Magnus, the senior research fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. We don't yet know his fistfight record, but maybe we'll get to that. Possibly. Uh, we'll see the
1: <laughs> to- university professors.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Together they are the the authors of <laughs> Cracks in the Ivory Tower, The Moral Mess of Higher Education. Welcome to Free Thoughts, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So this might seem obvious to people, but I think your book sort of raises this question. What is a college or university for? It's
1: a good question. Uh, you know, ostensibly, they present themselves as uh, proprietors of high-minded ideals of education, of uh, transferring knowledge. But uh, we also find in some of the more recent literature, especially Brian Kaplan's book, and this is a theme we explore ourselves, that universities are actually in the market for credentialing. They're providing a degree that's an access point to the job market.
2: Yeah. In the, the last chapter of this book, we review maybe six or seven different items or things that universities could be aiming toward. They could be museums of ideas. And if they are, they're very poor museums. They could be uh, things are meant to originate ideas. So very few universities are actually in the idea production uh, regime. Maybe a couple hundred do that. Most of them simply regurgitate ideas. They could be about teaching students and giving them skills, but pretty much all of them fail to actually do that. Um, there's a couple other purposes that they might have, like they could be public investment machines and that kind of stuff. And they seem to be pretty good, at least for that purpose. So uh, yeah, but they're, the things that they advertise themselves as doing aren't what they actually do
0: your your book reminded me of something actually that Brian Kaplan told me one time when I said something like well I think I said well public schools are very inefficient and Brian said ah, ah but they might be extremely efficient at delivering a specific good that is not the one that you think they're supposed to be delivering, like like having good pay for teachers and secure jobs. I be mean, extremely good at that. And I think a lot of the things you see in your book is that that if you look at the incentive structure, you can, might say public universities or just universities in general may be bad at being these sort of paragons of enlightened discussion, but they're really good at some other things. Uh, and everyone wants something different out of these universities. So, so what are academics looking to get out of the university?
1: Let's say uh, employment first and foremost. And you find this as a recurring theme that uh, university professors want a good, uh, stable, secure, well-paying job to do things that they like. And if you have a uh, an intellectual hobby that's uh, very heavily interested in a specific discipline, if you really like history, you really like philosophy, you really like math, there's um, almost no better job that you can get to be paid to uh, sit around and study that on your own time and your own direction uh, basically the entire year. And not only that, have all the perks that come with academic life of being self-directed in your research. You get to choose what you want to work on. You have a large summer break. You have opportunities for travel around the world. So uh, these types of opportunities that exist with an academic job are very, very appealing for people who
0: uh, want to work in that area. How do we see this play out in terms of the uh, sort of the inner university, inner campus politics between – so, of course, every – Every professor wants employment, uh, but but as Phil pointed out, there might be a difference between 14th century Estonian choral music and economics professors, and then there might be some tension there.
2: Yeah, you can think of the entire university as being – it's made up of a number of individuals who work as individuals, but also are part of interest groups, and they know that they're part of organized interest groups. And they're all organizing to fight over a limited amount of resources and power and status. And so uh, – administrators, they try to get more money for themselves and more status for themselves. And the way that they do that might be by inviting external control and external regulation, which then allows them to hoard over the faculty and force them to do things. Um, As an individual administrator, you can get more money for yourself and more status for yourself by increasing the amount of stuff that your office does, and that can mean including useless stuff um, or counterproductive things, or by increasing the number of staff who work for you, and then you can externalize the cost of that onto others, but you in turn get a higher budget for not just your office, but also you get a higher salary and more status. Um, Individual academic departments... um, Like English or economics have that same kind of incentive where I benefit from being in a larger department rather than a smaller department that means more money for me. Students have similar kinds of things where when they're making decisions about what's worth doing, anytime there's more programming or more perks added, the costs are diffused, but they often have the benefits concentrated. And so everybody's kind of lobbying to get more for themselves And then the odd thing is that the people at the very top, you know, the presidents and so on, you might think that they would think, well, we should try to have the most bang for a buck and be efficient and (laughs) and try to lower costs. But you never see a president come in and say, I'm going to try to deliver the same amount of good that we're doing right now for 25% less. I think we can do it if we trim like the fat off. Instead, They have this weird thing where the bigger – the more money the university spends, the more impressive they look and the easier it is for them to then go on and move on to another university and get a bigger pay raise for themselves and so on. So everyone has this incentive to just increase costs.
0: And you said – you guys cite something that I didn't know but the US News and World Report it has a direct relationship between how much you spend per student. So if you spend less and get the same output, your ranking will go down, which is insane.
2: Yeah, we we grabbed their algorithm and we didn't have access to uh, all of their data uh, for everything. But we could make some rough calculations um, based upon uh, the numbers that they had. And so it worked out to be something like uh, the year that I looked at the the thing in the book, it was like – I think it was like the 2018 data, the University of Chicago was ranked number three. But if miraculously the University of Chicago could deliver exactly the same goods as they did with spending zero money, they would go from ranked third to like 13th, right? Like, and Yale was like the same kind of thing. So yeah, (laughs) they reward you for overspending. They use uh, spending per student as a proxy for quality, which means that more efficient universities get hurt.
0: I think that's also a thing too, like proxies. How do you measure quality? Uh, I I think you could pretty much describe your book as public choice theory applied to the university in some basics. And maybe that's how you guys first got together and said we should write this book. Who are the actors? What are the incentives? What do they want to maximize? What do they want to minimize? How are they using different metrics? Now, the students – this is my favorite one. I love this question that Jay asks his students in class. What what do the students want? Uh, Would you rather, A, graduate from Georgetown with the Georgetown diploma but literally learn nothing the entire time you were here – B, graduate from East Podunk State College, but double your knowledge. C, not graduate from any college, but triple your knowledge. How do your students rank those preferences?
2: Oh, in that order. Uh, Universally, they would prefer to have the Georgetown degree with no increase in knowledge to having a lower quality degree, lower prestige degree with a massive increase in knowledge to having an incredible increase in knowledge with no degree at all. And I say in the book, I'm not blaming them. Like I'm not saying that that shows that they're uh that they have bad preferences or they don't care about learning they do care about learning they do care about ideas they're intellectual type people, but they also understand the incentives if if I wave my magic wand and make it so you now have the greatest engineering knowledge of anyone in the world. Well, you know, you still won't get a job as an engineer. No one will know that you have that knowledge. And you might be like, oh, I can just start my own engineering business. Well, no, you can't because you won't get licensed, you won't get credentialed, and no one's going to give you money to start an engineering firm, like no venture capitalist, because they don't know that you know this stuff. So the, the credential matters. So I like to say that uh, going to college for the sake of learning is like booking a trans-Pacific flight for the sake of the
0: meals. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and the students... I guess the backdrop of this too is the students are the ones coming in with usually the government-backed financial aid. So we have, you know, institutions, you can analyze the incentives of any given institution, whether it's for-profit or not-for-profit, but it seems like one of the elements of this is that the government is is just sort of funneling money into it. And so there's no, there's no break on it with the price, with the price point.
1: Well, that's absolutely the case. And we've seen uh, higher ed shifting, uh, higher ed funding has shifted very heavily toward this type of a model of a uh, student payer, but it's a student payer with uh, all these different layers of state and federal loans, sometimes state and federal grants that are attached to it. Uh, that's definitely increased as, at a uh, very rapid pace in the past 20 years. One of the points that we make uh, is if you take education as a good, a market good that's being offered, ask the question, who's providing it? Who's receiving it? Who are the uh, the, the suppliers and who are the customer bases? And if you see the uh, the faculty or the suppliers, they don't price their good. They're detached in one layer on the uh, uh, the execution side of what they're offering. Students are not actually price responsive either because they're going through second and third party payers essentially to, uh, you know, fund tuition to, uh, to acquire uh, this degree. And you start asking the question, what incentive exists for a student to shop around for the best price for their education? And we find out it doesn't. That best case scenario, they're going through a parent or someone who's funding it indirectly. Uh, more often the case it's through uh, multiple different layers.
2: Yeah. One of the disturbing things we found was uh, – so governments offer subsidies to students to get them better educated and the reasoning is – it sounds like sound reasoning. They say, well, look, some people can't afford a college that should go to college. They're, you know, We shouldn't let these mines go to waste. So let's offer them a subsidy. Now, we know in basic microeconomics, if the government said, you know, we don't think enough people can afford a Honda Civic, so we're going to give everyone a $10,000 voucher to buy a Civic, we know what auto dealers would do. They would raise their prices by roughly $10,000 and you wouldn't actually help the students. You wouldn't help anyone get any uh, Hondas, you just help the Honda dealers. But you might think, well, universities, they're not for profit. They have often social justice missions, so maybe they won't be price responsive in the same way. But there are a bunch of studies on this and what they find is, nope, they act just like the auto dealers. subsidies to college and colleges respond by increasing their price.
0: Hmm. Well, it's interesting going on with what Phil said. So where the students are responsive, they're not paying, and and you know, thirty years down the line when their du- their loans are due, they're not right. really <laughs> sensitive to that. So, but that what you see maybe is they go to visit the campus and they say, look, there's a climbing wall, there's a lazy river, there's all these great amenities. They kind of expect it seems, especially with gen ed requirements. And I'd like to get in, into how those work, that, that you're going to have this sort of liberal university. They're going to make you take 120 credit hours of various things. That's all going to be the same except for maybe how the the school is ordered, you know, ranked in terms of prestige, but this one has a climbing wall. And so we also see the incentives work out there.
1: That's absolutely the case. And this uh, this is something we see anecdotally all over the country. New uh, university uh, builds a lazy river on campus, and there are several public universities that have these expensive facilities. And you you see when uh, students go on campus for the tour, where do they take them around? It's to the uh, athletic facility that has the climbing wall or the uh, uh, the fancy amenities. It's to the uh, all the student life uh, amenities and activities that they can really show off, or it's to the nicest dorm, the dorm that has uh, in-suite bathrooms and uh, and looks more like a hotel than uh, something you would have lived in twenty or thirty years ago. The the, the kind of the grungy. Dorm that they stick the freshmen in. So universities are really using this almost as a marketing point to sell students on coming to their uh, particular campus. Choose our college because you're going to be here for three, four, or five years, and life is going to be great. It's going to be a, a continuous party with activities. You're going to have a, a high-end social community. And all of this is built into the package in addition to this education thing you're pursuing.
0: So, I mean, maybe we're paying too much for schools and, I, and that – I don't know how much we should be paying for schools. And there's obviously the experience of going to college. There's a sort of experience good. Uh, but college is worth it. I mean, I mean, under any metric in terms of earnings, right, it seems that college is worth it even if you – leave with $150,000 in debt. It's still worth it for many, many people, if not most people.
2: Yeah. One funny number that's come up recently, there are a couple of studies on this is that the people who graduate with more debt tend to have a higher repay rate than the people who graduate with very little debt. The average person who's $5,000 in, in college loans probably will drop out. Uh, that's why they have so little. They're often like lower quality students who go to lower tier schools. They drop out. They don't end up getting any kind of wage premium and they can't repay that $5,000. Somebody comes out of Duke University with $80,000 in loans. Um, that's a lot of money to repay, but they'll probably get a job that allowed them to repay it. So the the thing about college is uh, it's clear that there's a wage premium and that there's a positive return on investment. But there's a question um, and there's another book on this, Brian Kaplan's book that's more about this than ours. Uh Why do you get this wage premium? What explains it? And it might be the kind of thing where um, as an individual... I benefit from getting the degree, but it'd be better if just no one was getting these degrees. So we're all competing to have ever better credentials. There becomes an arms race. There's a positive return as an individual for this, for me getting the greater credential. But socially speaking, we're spending a lot more money to chase, like we're spending more money to chase these credentials than we're getting back as a group. But for any individual, i benefit from doing it. So Brian Kaplan's analogy, which I'm sure you've heard before, is if we're at a concert, like a classical concert, we feel like sitting and one person stands up, he gets
0: a better view. Then everybody stands up and no one gets a better view. And, or eventually someone could bring a box and then everyone has to bring a box. And then you could have like everyone has to bring 10 boxes and right. the entire crowd yeah. is standing on 10 boxes. <laughs> yeah.
2: So no matter what other people do, you're better getting up higher than, than staying lower. But we, so we better if collectively, we just stayed lower.
0: Now, I see the point with a lot of these degrees, English, or say some of these humanities degrees in terms of how many skills it adds to actually adds. Uh, to, having a specialty in 16th century French literature or something like that, but engineering or some of these STEM things, they, those definitely have a skills-added thing. I think you go into school not knowing how to build a bridge, and you might leave school knowing how to build a bridge. So it's more of the problem with the humanities than it is with the stems, the STEM classes.
2: Well, even the STEM degrees, uh, you spend a lot more time learning skills you don't really need. Um, so you know, if you're like I'm in a business school, and maybe. 20% of what students learn they're actually going to use on the job. And I don't mean, Hey, cause I've said this before in one of my classes, like you're all, you're going to get maybe 20% out of this, but it's different for you than for you. Sometimes it's like that. But I mean, overall, a lot of what you're studying just will not be useful. Um, and it's predictably not useful ahead of time. In fact, it's often on purpose. It's not useful. The reason the classes are there is not because it's good for you, but because it's good for the faculty to make you take them. Uh, but then, even some of the general skills they're supposed to learn they don't. So one of these really disturbing studies we were looking at said um, they, they took physics and chemistry majors at Arizona State. And I understand, sorry ASU, that, you know. <laughs> you're, you're sitting here
0: wearing, he, by the way, Jay is currently wearing an Arizona Wildcats t-shirt. Right, so. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so, I mean, Arizona State University undergrads is kind of like a glorified community college, but uh, not for the physics Send, majors. The,
0: send the emails to Jay. Jay896 <laughs> at georgetown. Yeah,
2: sure. um, But I probably won't read them because if you're coming for ASU, you probably won't spell properly and I'll just (laughs) dismiss it. But anyways, like, so ASU overall is like a glorified community college, but to be a physics Physics major or a chemistry major at ASU, you still have to be really, really smart. You have to have an IQ of like 130. So ASU physics majors, I think you're smart, except for the following. They they do this study asking them really basic question about understanding science. So this is the question, uh, like, It turns out like this is the study's being done, like to see people have a general scientific reasoning ability and they say, All right, we're we have a number of people coming into the student health center and they're reporting mental illnesses of various sorts, and it turns out they're not eating. Does it follow from that that if they ate better, their mental illness would go away or be improved? Very basic question. If you've taken a science class or you just you're good at science, you should be able to answer. No, it doesn't follow. It could be that that's actually a symptom. It has a common cause. And you could devise certain experiments to like study that. And then they they wanted to study how well do uh, senior physics and chemistry majors do answering this question? And uh, they had like a zero to four scoring system. And the overall majority of the people got a 0.5. So they were just horrible. After four years of studying science, they can't take that skill, this general scientific reasoning, and apply it to... A novel question outside of the narrow domain that they've studied. And these are smart people with IQs of 130, right? Not the average ASU student, as I said, is dumb, but like the smart ASU students.
0: Maybe the problem, I mean, critical thinking skills. We send people to universities and we have all these gen ed requirements to, to I remember I went to Boulder and, you know, we had cultural literacy and we had composition and some, some math and a foreign language, stuff I tested out of in high school. But learning this stuff helped me learn better skills, like just generally writing, critical thinking, learning a foreign language taught me more about my language than, than any English class I ever took because you, because you're learning about parts of speech and how different languages work. So doesn't this all end up being like a well-rounded person comes, comes from this? You guys are both just grimacing. No, <laughs> no Phil?
1: <laughs> yeah. I guess, uh, there, there are two uh, layers to this problem. And the first is if you ask, uh, the students, uh, like, what what kind of skills did you learn in college? And they have surveys where they go and ask students that are recent graduates, would you evaluate – how would you self-evaluate your writing skill? And it's always above average to excellent. Uh, you get um, major segments of the student population, think that they're wonderful writers. They've gained all this stuff.
0: They're all from Garrison they're, Keillor's exactly, Yeah, Exactly. Yeah.
1: Uh, everyone's above yeah. average. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you go ask the uh, employers, people that are hiring on the first um, – uh, layer of the job market, people that are taking entry-level employers, what skill do your um, employees lack the most? And they all say they can't write. Uh, their writing skill is terrible. So you have a difference in perception of the students themselves that are coming out of this program, but then also what the employers are saying, it's just completely at odds with each other. Add on to that actual measures of what these programs are being delivered. Uh, and there are several studies that have been done where they'll they'll say it, administer a test to freshmen, their first week of campus, uh, they'll ask them, uh, maybe write in response to this, uh, this prompt essay and it's, uh, to evaluate their critical thinking skills, evaluate their writing level, just basic, uh, introductory stuff when they're coming out of high school. And then they come back and they administer the same test again at the end of sophomore year. So after you've been through two to three, uh, semesters of English and writing, another couple of semesters of, uh, of, uh, gen ed, humanities, first year experience type of classes. Uh, so supposedly, you you should see a uh, measurable increase in all these different skill sets, and there's no difference. There's no difference whatsoever between the uh, uh, the first time it's administered and then after two years and uh, however many classes later. Uh, there's no improvement that's seen for the typical student. A uh, few minor exceptions. If you're an English major, it does seem to go up, but for almost everyone else who's taking these classes, uh, it's just not discernible that they're doing anything at all to their benefit, other than uh, you know taking their money and keeping professors
2: employed. Most students get worse at math over time. So (laughs) if you're not using math, you come in better at math than when you leave. Yeah. That's why like the GRE math section is often easier than the SAT math section. Exactly. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I mean, but what about cultural enrichment? I mean, this seems to be, if we're trying to get people to enjoy you know, a liberal education being I've read Shakespeare, I have some familiar Dickens, I know what references are, maybe I took a music class, maybe I went and read some Plato and a Philosophy 101 class. I mean, that, that, they have a familiarity. They might be able to answer a question about Plato on a test and be like, yes, I know what the Republic was. That seems like a good thing. Well,
2: even not that there's like a study directly testing how much people remember about Plato, but just like this kind of general knowledge of what they learn, Uh, forget about the soft skills, which for nine out of ten students don't go up very much. Um, They forget most of what they learn in college and in high school. It seems like when the tests, on average, say they maybe remember about twenty percent. It doesn't appear to really turn people into sort of uh, appreciators of fine art and fine culture. Uh, You know, philosophy books and. Uh, don't sell very well and people aren't consuming opera and they're not buying Shakespeare. They're just watching a slightly higher quality Netflix show compared to the <laughs> unwashed masses that don't go to college. Yeah, but there has been
0: an uptick in the quality of television. Maybe it's because people went to university.
2: Well, maybe it's because uh, when you have a, a niche system, when you're able to pay, you get a premium customer who is higher that's income. That's yeah. Pay for a
0: premium product. I prefer to blame the university, Jay. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, so it, it's sort of like these things are speculated, but it, insofar there have been studies attempting to show that A, causes B, they just don't find it. Uh, our best evidence is not that we know for sure universities aren't delivering, but there's very little evidence that they're delivering for most of the students. right? So maybe for like the bottom half of the students, they get nothing out of college. For the next forty percent, they get a little bit. And for maybe one out of ten people, they get a lot. Interestingly,, uh, people like you, you know, you're an intellectual, And when educational psychologists study professors and intellectuals, they're the people that retain a great deal of stuff from all their different classes and they synthesize it and they apply it and transfer it to novel situations. So I think a lot of what happens is that universities are being taught by people who have an unusual psychology when it comes to learning and their model of how a university should work is based upon themselves, not based upon the actual students they're getting. And they're like, I learned so much. And it's like, yeah, that's right. You're the kind I of weirdo a Shakespeare class. Yeah, yeah. You're the kind of weirdo who becomes a college <laughs> professor. <so. laughs> All
0: right. So some of the more interesting things in your book is also metrics. And it's kind of interesting, I think, when you find metrics that this, this is actually more common, I think, than a lot of people realize that, that you can have an institutional effect where everyone just sort of pays attention to a metric because it's what they use and it's been solidified over time. The Nielsen ratings in television have worked this way forever, even though they kind of know that they're BS and sweeps week was always like BS. They all just sort of solidified around them. So the two of the metrics that you guys discussed, so student evaluations, which matter a lot in, in, in raises and promotions and things like that. What's wrong with student evaluations? They're basically
1: incoherent in the way that they're uh, administered. They don't really tell us anything at all. Uh, They're also very subject to bias. There are several studies that have, uh, you know, revealed that uh, the difference between a male and a female professor is going to affect how students are rating them, uh, what they write down. Um, If you you are attempting to aggregate, for example, a uh, series of student ratings across classes, uh, the quality of what goes into the material is uh, is is highly variant. A lot of it's also correlated with uh, how well you did in the class. So uh, students that get A's tend to write better evaluations, for example. Uh, professors that are hard graders uh, get penalized in terms of, of that. So uh, trying to use this as kind of a standard metric to evaluate teaching quality across the university becomes a uh, – just basically an incoherent basis to make decisions on. And not only that, it, there, there are some elements that could be said to be outright unethical if you're uh, using a metric to uh, make promotion or hiring decisions and it's actually incorporating other personal biases that students bring to the table. That's a real problem.
2: Yeah. In the book, we, we go through very carefully what would it take to actually measure teaching effectiveness? Um, and it would require randomization of students and a bunch of other things in order to know, control for all the confounding variables, which would interfere with student like student freedom and academic freedom. And then then you could, in principle, measure it. And insofar as people have a number of different, uh, people have run studies trying to see, is there a correlation between genuinely measured teaching effectiveness versus what happens on people's SET scores, you know, student evaluation scores? It's
0: probably <laughs> negative. It's probably negative.
2: There's a very slight negative correlation. Uh, so Phil and I, we put in our, our scores and we're like, just right. be like, we're that's not special a- pleading. We actually get a, like highly above average scores. But then at the end, we're like, but if anything, that's a count against us because uh, there's a slight negative correlation between how much students learn and what, what our scores are. So they're reliable, which is a technical term, meaning that people tend to get the same score over and over again, but they're invalid, meaning they do not track teaching effectiveness. They, anything that can meaningfully be called teaching effectiveness is not captured. But the question then is, well, why do these things persist? And so we start the book by saying, if you understand ancient divination rituals, you recognize that there's a use to these things, even though they're, they're literally bullshit, uh, because Like, one, if I'm the sort of witch doctor of my tribe, that gives me more power over others. Having people believe in this common mythology can keep them in line. It can allow the administrators to have power over the sort of lay people. Um, Students might – so, like, students might not – they don't seem to know that they're invalid. So, they feel like they're getting their input and they feel placated. Um, So, you, like, you kind of – cheaply pay the students off. Once you get a bunch of people whose job it is to administer these things, they fight very heavily to reinforce them. And they they ignore, they don't know the research, even though the research is overwhelmingly negative. All the positive research is back in the 80s before they were statistically savvy. All the new research is completely negative. Um, the people who work on this survey show they don't know that it's invalid. They don't actually study it. And then if you think about the conflict between administrators and faculty, Student evaluation scores give power to administrators over the faculty. They help them get resources, help them control them, help them allow them to standardize classes, and et cetera. Makes faculty more expendable. But we then say, like the next chapter. So we know faculty are going to be like, yeah, yeah, you got them. Yeah, this stuff is BS. We're like, great, let's look at grading.
0: But well, before we go to grading, I want to I want to ask about student evaluations. Yeah, it's got to be better than nothing. I mean, well, I mean, Yelp, Yelp, Yelp is incoherent too you can't. I mean, you can't take Yelp reviews and average them in the way. And there's all, and you know, the question of you know whether or not it, what the, what they're actually rating is this people rating the same thing. Uh, but it's better. It's better than nothing.
2: Oh no, it's worse than nothing. Nothing is better. Nothing is definitely better. Imagine I'm your your boss. Uh, in here at Cato, and I'm like, all right, I want to measure uh, who are the most effective at their jobs, and the way I'm going to do that is by have people step on a scale and then measure their height, and whoever has the like most ideal bmi i'm going to give like the biggest raise to and the biggest promotion to you'd be like oh my boss is an asshole he's mistreating <laughs> me he's not doing the right thing like my boss owes it to me to evaluate me by like a proper measure of my actual job and so like at best you can say about these things yeah they placate students cuz they don't know better it gives them power but you're you're act you're an asshole boss when you use these but
0: but if so we talked about the student experience, so why we have climbing walls, why we have lazy rivers. So if the students like a professor because he's super cool and fun and plays guitar or whatever, uh, but but doesn't learn that much, but if we're actually manufacturing a student experience here, I mean, maybe that's really what this is. It's like four-year club med for 18 to 22-year-olds, right. <laughs> uh, and it needs to seem that way, and we pay a bunch for it, so we can spend four years on this, get the credential, move on, and maybe we should just accept that. And if they're grading you by being like, I like that guy, that guy's class is cool, and not not that I've been rigorously tested how much I learned in Jay's class or Phil's class, then, then that's okay.
2: Yeah, if universities came forth and were honest about this stuff, I think it would remove some of the moral problems. So if they, if they changed their view books and said – Instead of saying like we're going to teach you all these skills that will transform you into a new person and make you high minded, if they just say, say all the time they say exactly. if they, <laughs> they stop saying that and they just said ah it's going to be a lot of fun and you'll get a credential at the end which will help you make more money like um, ASU yeah you know,
0: <laughs> if they said that that would take away the problem if email your boss, J oh, for that one <laughs>
2: yeah, if the if this if your deans just said oh we're, we want to be very clear to this to both the students and the faculty that we know that these scores are not measuring teaching effectiveness they're simply a matter of student satisfaction and that's what we care about. That would be more honest. And I can say I've been in an experience where uh, for an executive education program where the, the person in charge of it basically said, yeah, we're using this as a profit making uh, venture. So we just care about student satisfaction. We don't actually care that much about the learning. And it's like at least he's admitting that, you know, and if if they do that. That's fine, but that's not what they're doing. They're, they're using this under the pretense that they're measuring certain things and delivering certain skills, and they don't, which makes them either liars or, in most cases, um, negligent because they should know better. They shouldn't just say it, right? If I, if I come forth and I say to you, you know, Trevor, if you buy this piece of paper from me, it is going to make you the greatest guitarist of all time, and then you give me $1,000 and it doesn't work. And my excuse is, oh, well, I didn't actually do any research on whether it worked. Or even if you believed it, but you didn't do any research. I believed it, (laughs) but I didn't do my research. You'd be like, yeah, you're still still engaging in bad marketing. You can't do that. If a drug company did this – what we say in the book is if drug companies advertise the way that universities did, the FDA would like shut them down and fine them billions and billions of dollars. But universities get away with the kind of advertising that no for-profit company is allowed to do.
0: Well, the university is an icon of like Western civilization. Too. I mean, Bologna and the kind of development of the university system. But you mentioned grading, so th- th- this is a big one. You know, grade, straight A student uh, grading. You know, Fs. We use them as metaphors all the time, but grading is also problematic.
2: Yeah. So we 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 started writing, this, so we expected to say something like, "Well, you know, grades have nine different things that they can mean, and it's not clear which they are." But that that really is a problem. Like there. Even like over 100 years ago, a book was written on this and said there is no set thing that a grade means. Um, It could could mean ranking you against other people in your class, ranking you against other people that like uh, in the university or in the country as a whole. It could mean something like. Measuring you by some absolute standard of value. It could mean measuring – Like
0: 75 out of 100, correct?
2: Yeah. Or just like – but also it could be qualitative. Like I think this is good. I think this is excellent by some standard. Um, It turns out professors are not reliable grading class to class or essay to essay. If you give them essays in a different order, they grade them differently. It turns out that professors mean – Something like at least nine different things when they assign grades, which creates a level of incoherence because just, just think of the mathematics here. You get an A in English, a B and, – an and A in English means excellent. And then you take an, a chemistry 101 class and you get a B. And a B there means 85% of the questions, right? And then you take a econ 101 in the business school and you get an A. And an A there means um, uh, like – You know, rank really two out of 45. Right. <laughs> so then the mathematics is, okay, great. Plus 85% plus ranked two out of 45 divided by three equals. So your, GPA, they, right? your, GPA, <laughs> your GPA, right? GPA, <laughs> And they substitute in these numbers and that's not licit. And there's even problems with things like uh, a lot of times these rankings are scoring are what are called ordinal numbers rather than cardinal. So ordinal means like first, second, third, fourth. And you can't average those the way you can average numbers like just one, two, and three. So literally, the the mathematics of this is incoherent. It turns out GPA is not really correlated with like future job success or so on. There aren't that many studies on it, but insofar as there are, it doesn't. It's not as good a predictor as people think it would be. There's strong evidence that it hurts student learning. It makes them worse at learning. So we should probably stop doing it. And for what it's worth, I mean, we want to make this very clear. Phil and I are the exact opposite of Hampshire College hippies. (laughs) I am am all about measuring things and using numbers and, you know, people like neoliberal. No, no, I want to measure things. I think you can put a, a specific dollar value in every individual human life. Like I think everyone's life is commensurate with the dollar value. Yeah, yeah. My problem here is not that we're using numbers, it's that we're doing bad science. Trevor Burrus Yeah, so you're not
0: saying, you can't reduce people to a number, man. Trevor Burrus junior I'm like, we
2: should reduce people to numbers but and we're ones. totally sucking at it here. Trevor Burrus <laughs> It's not this we're, number. We're doing Since so, we're yeah. bad at, so bad at it, we should stop doing it. Trevor
0: so, Burrus so, But again, this, I'm thinking about the fact that this is better. It's, is it better than nothing? Is it, does it give us some semblance? So we don't know. Again, I'm thinking of Yelp again. We don't know what people mean when they mean four stars or when they mean three stars or when they write five stars and we average them together. We don't know exactly what that means for anyone. We also don't know with an A, B, C grade. And always with ranking systems, as we see in the sharing economy, they're trying to get more granular data, right? So you rank your Uber driver. Uh, and then they say, do you like then they want to go, do you like conversation? Do you like speed? Do you like the fact that they didn't talk? You know, how do you how do you average these together? Nevertheless, even though some people like an Uber driver who doesn't talk and some people like an Uber driver who talks all the time, there's some meaning to that data that's better than not having it. And could couldn't we do something with grades where we try to fix it and make it better than zero?
1: Like one of the issues that comes up is uh, anytime you you try to impose a metric of this nature, it's often gameable. It's often manipulable. And there are people that that do chase GPA. Uh, I've had dozens of those types of students in in class. They come in and, well, I got a 95 on this quiz, but I really need a 97 because I have a a perfect GPA and you're going to ruin it if you don't uh, give me this – one particular grade. So it actually does uh, alter the way that people uh, conduct themselves, alter the way that students conduct themselves in class. So uh, not only do you have a a poor metric, a metric that doesn't really tell you much of anything, it's one that creates all sorts of perverse incentives uh, up and down the system. Same thing with teaching evaluations. If, uh, say, I'm a a student in a class and I don't like a professor because I'm unhappy with my performance, maybe that person graded me harshly or uh uh didn't appreciate the uh the the value of the paper or something that I turned in and they know that they can penalize me by writing this really horrendous review uh giving me nothing but uh one out of 5 on all my scores uh, writing malicious things in the comments, uh, turning that into my department. And then my department chair, if he's making a decision on that, uh, calls me into the office and says, What's going on here? What the hell? Uh, I just got this, uh, set of evaluations from a student. They said that you're absolutely horrible, but there's another story behind it. Uh, well, then the perverse incentive has actually played out. So what we get is, uh, is metrics that are not only inaccurate in delivering the information that they promised to deliver, but are gameable in such ways that they could be used for harmful purposes.
0: Well, this is why you need tenure. So so (laughs) tenure protects – if you want to be a professor who gets – who teaches hard and and ends up getting the 3.5 out of 5 rating on the student evaluations because you're a hard teacher, well, the tenure is what protects that, correct? And lets you do research and lets you research uh, controversial things. It's one of the reasons it's there.
2: But the problem is like getting tenure is often based upon these student evaluations. So at, at most, most universities, faculty do very little research. Most faculty over their course of their lives do very little research. They spend most of their time teaching and most schools, the, decisions about tenure and promotion and also your year to year raise are based upon these teaching evaluations, which are not valid measures of student learning. So, and then like you're giving students grades, which actually make them learn less. Like that's what the empirical evidence is. It hurts their learning. So you have that kind of, even, even for me, I work at a research one university, my, um, my raise is almost entirely determined, is predominantly determined by how much research I do. We get summer bonuses based upon doing research. Uh, we get increased um, research budgets based upon like publication and so on. But even for me, if I got lower evaluations, that would come out of my pocket. That would make me lose some money. Right. And that compounds year after year. If I get a thousand dollars less raised this year, that's worth like I'm trying to do a net present value of that. But over the next 30 years, that's worth like 150 <laughs> grand. Right. Yeah. You know, so that's that's a lot. And, you know, at my school, like that's the primary thing that we use to evaluate whether you're a good teacher is student teaching evaluations, even though the research overwhelmingly says they're not good.
0: So so, what about tenure? Should should we have? I mean, we, we mentioned it doesn't protect teachers who want to teach hard, but does it help them produce more sort of trailblazing research or protect academic freedom? Or
1: yeah, so uh, give you some summary stats. The uh, average college, college professor in the United States uh, self reports that they spend about sixty percent of their time on on teaching, and the remainder is split between service and research. If you actually get into what they're researching, what they're producing, typical professor uh, publishes less than one piece of research in a given year on average. And this could be anything from a simple book review all the way up to a 500-page manuscript.
0: And I imagine that that that's probably, if you average everything, you have some people who are, that curve is extremely right. We have people who publish, like Jay, who publish 20 things a year, and they have two people, and then the average is yeah, 11 yeah. between Jay and another professor. Yeah. It, it
1: is. It's, it's very much a skewed distribution, but the skew is much to the lower end. So uh, you have something like 25% of professors that uh, do next to nothing in terms terms of research, next to nothing in terms of output. Yeah, We have this tenure system that ostensibly it's there for all these high-minded ideals to protect freedom of speech, to uh, protect faculty from uh, being penalized by administrators in the university system. And some element of that is there. I'll give a a partial defense of tenure. There are actual cases where it has saved people from political persecution. There are cases where it's uh, allowed people to engage in controversial research. But it's also an entry barrier. It's an entry barrier into the field. That uh, can be used in uh, in ways that are uh, anything from uh, punitive and malicious uh, to to simple justification for more bureaucracy and how to get and secure that point in your career, Uh, I guess give another example, we think about the cases that are saved by tenure when they're a uh, high profile in the news. What about the people that never get tenure because uh, their fellow faculty or their fellow administrators view that as a risk to give to someone because they think, well, someone uh, five years in the future, this guy's going to be writing controversial research and he'll be tenured and I don't I don't want to have to deal with that. So uh, we're just going to get him out of the system.
2: There, there are quite a few studies on trying to test the hypothesis that tenure really helps people. Um, and so one th- theory about tenure, tenure is like when you get tenure you can finally do like really controversial stuff like you'd write a book about like how you should shoot cops that are acting badly and write a book about why like democracy <laughs> see, is bad. See the, see or, the
0: previous yeah, a few right, episodes right. with Jay, yes. You, you
2: could write a book about how your employer is corrupt or something. Now those did
0: come out after tenure, right? Yeah, they yeah, did. Yeah, you, uh,
2: you know, so um, but, but there are people who have tried to test this in economics and sociology and other fields and they'll try to get like independent research on like evaluation of how high hitting is this research and so on and how productive are people and what you find is that the threat of not getting tenure makes people really swing for the fences and like work very productively and produce a lot of stuff and then upon getting tenure people produce less and they become more conservative in their work so on average like for most faculty like what happens is when you remove the flames from under their butts, they work less. And that wouldn't be surprising if I if I said to like Tom Brady, you know, the greatest quarterback of all time, like if, if Bill Belichick said to him, You can be a quarterback for the rest of your life, no matter how badly you played, you'd think he'd probably play a little bit worse. If I said to the average McDonald's worker, I don't care if you burn every single French fry, you're still getting a, you know, at least a cost of living raise and you can work here forever, they'd be less productive and less uh less good. It turns out faculty are exactly the same as everybody else
0: they're not high-minded worldly yeah they just they have incentives too what, what a shock. Yeah, they
2: respond to incentives yeah
0: so I'd like to get into some of uh, the controversy that – well, Phil's uh, Twitter life was for lack of a term. <laughs> um, so there's a few things. That, so we have people who are lamenting the nature of the university, but they often claim it's because corporations are sort of taking over uh, the universities or neoliberal ideology is taking over universities, uh, not not these kind of basic incentive structure that you're talking about. So, so what what do we say to those, those ideas?
1: Oh, the poltergeist. Poltergeist concept. that yeah, poltergeist. We, uh, yeah, we develop in the book. Uh, you know what is a poltergeist? It's this phantasm, this uh, ghost-like creature that moves into a house and inhabits it, and you know causes a mess around the kitchen by th- throwing things out of cabinets, uh, causes creaks in the night, um, all sorts of problems. But the other thing about a poltergeist is they don't exist. They're not real. They're not uh, actual entities. So we use this as a metaphor for um, major critiques and diagnoses of the university system that we hear, especially in the higher ed press. If you uh, uh, interview professors, uh, what they do is they look around the university system, they see there are real problems. There are problems in employment. There's a a huge job crunch in the humanities, a uh, a glut of uh, PhD seekers for jobs, uh, at a time when uh, there are very few jobs to go around, uh, the, the number far exceeds what's available to make a career in that. Uh, they also see administrators act, acting unethically or things like the college admission scandal. So very real diagnosable problems. But the tendency in this, uh, the strain of the literature in this press is rather than to get into what are the institutional underpinnings or, or some of the reasons behind these problems, they'll, uh, they'll seize onto a poltergeist, a phantasm. And two of the most popular ones that they come into are, are corporatization of the university system or closely related neoliberalism. It's kind of this boogeyman term uh, that is all encompassing. It's supposed to explain everything that's wrong with the university system. It can't be something that we're doing wrong ourselves. Rather, this uh this outside other has moved in and invaded the universities and taken away all the things that were good about university life 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, and turned it into, uh, kind of the service of this mess. Well, we ask the question, uh, when, when they're diagnosing these phantasms, they're diagnosing poltergeists, what is the term? What does it actually mean? What is neoliberalism? And you can go through a, uh, 10,000 article and book literature on the, on the question of neoliberalism and you find that there's no clear, coherent definition of what it even means. It's, uh, it's really kind of this pejorative term that's thrown out, uh, to encompass Markets in general, economics in general, but above all else, things that I personally don't like. Uh, So it becomes uh, kind of the scapegoat for uh, getting around actually having to confront real problems, real issues.
0: Are we seeing university faculty more friendly to markets or more? Oh, (laughs)
1: quite the contrary. uh, And there actually is good survey data on this. Uh, they're uh, – we don't try to make this as a left versus right point at all. We aren't trying to get into the ideology, but it is nonetheless measurable. So if you were to ask the question, what does a neoliberal university look like, we'd suppose that professors are becoming more pr- market-friendly if uh, neoliberalism has invaded uh, the pr- professoriate. Uh, or the Or the administration. The president. Uh, pres- yeah. Everything all the way down. We should start seeing uh, – if neoliberalism's taken over the university, they should be hiring neoliberals. And it's actually the opposite trend. Faculty on a whole have moved uh, dramatically leftward in the past 20 years.
2: And administrators. And
1: administrators. More. And it's just, just up and down the system. So faculty have gone from maybe about a, a 40% left-leaning plurality to now it's a, a two-thirds majority. Uh, They start polling administrators, and the administrators are even further to the left in their political identification than the faculty. Uh, So this is not market ideology that's invaded the university system, or if it is, they're doing a really uh, poor job. Of um, ensuring that this is enforced, so we asked this question: Is like, does this uh, claim of neoliberalism taking over the universities even hold up? And metric after metric after metric of attempting to uh, discern that uh, reveals no evidence in favor, and quite a bit to the opposite.
2: Yeah, the universities are the most neoliberal back in the fifties. Yeah. that's when they were neoliberal. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> now, now there's some sort of general market yeah. friendliness. Yeah, now there's a, now they're very left leaning, and that's just everyone from the top to the bottom very left leaning, social justice oriented. And we're not saying that's bad, but we're just saying where there's no neoliberalism here. There's no evidence of this infection. So one one thing that's nice about this, this chapter, which like Phil mostly wrote was he as best you can operationalize the claims that people are making and then measured them and said it's the opposite of the trend. Like corporatization is not the right diagnosis. It's rather just uh, an Niskanen effect of budget maximization within smaller bodies. Bill Niskanen, not the yeah, Niskanen center. center. Yeah, yeah. Center, uh, the Niskanen Center, the not aptly named <laughs> Niskanen <scanning> Center. Um, <laughs>
0: So, it, it's bureaucracies try, want to increase their yeah. They want their to increase budget. Their discretionary yeah. budget. So, yeah. what
2: we find is like you have these highfaluting mm-hmm. stories that people tell, where they don't really give a causal explanation or a mechanism by how it would cause it. And it's like, oh, maybe you're right, but but it, the tr- evidence goes the other way. And then we can just tell a simple story about there's this person. They have this incentive to do this thing for themselves, and they can externalize the cost of others. And what we offer as a diagnosis explains everything without having to get into highfaluting concepts. You know, so it's like if you mug somebody. The first thing we want to ask is like, well, was he just being a jerk? He, he thought he could get away with and get some money rather than start talking about did Satan possess <laughs> you or cause you to do it? Like we don't go to the satanic explanation. Until like, you need to.
0: So if we're looking at – some of these problems that, that Phil mentioned that the academia has acknowledged with the college schedule scandal, we have we have an increasing sort of skepticism toward college and whether or not it's worth it, all this kind of stuff. And if we did a radical reform for, I mean, for example, we, we kind of broke it up, made it much more vocational, whatever, kind of broke up the kind of gen ed requirements. How many people on the universities understand for example, like professors and PhDs trying to get their PhD that if there wasn't a requirement that they take your class, like sociology of and stuff, they understand that they would literally have no students like in a market voluntarily right. going. They would say economics is a good degree for getting a lot of career path. Sociology, you have to kind of make people take it and then you could justify the existence of the department. And you guys talk about these things, these meetings you've been in where someone says we're going to create a new engineering degree. And it's like, well, only if you create a new sociology professor like position to study the sociology of engineering. And it seems like that that might be extremely conscious. I have to protect my department or no one would actually – go to my classes.
1: So what we uh, develop in the book is basically a, a theory of academic rent-seeking, and it parallels rent-seeking in the in the, uh, the political world. Um, so he asks the question of what does a university exist for? And ostensibly, the high-minded version is introdu- introduction to uh, a wide range of subject matter, all the liberal arts, a person emerges from a, a degree program with a well-rounded education. But w- what we actually find is that the departments that uh, – uh, are facing declining enrollments, they're, they're, they're dropping majors, they're less and less popular, uh, also tend to be more reliant on making their classes mandatory. So it's not that you walk into the university system and you have to take one math, one economics, one English, one history, one philosophy. It ends up being maybe you have uh, one semester where you choose between uh, economics, uh, sociology, and psychology, and four semesters of English. So English is something that's uh that is very rapidly contracting in terms of majors. And there's actually some empirical evidence of this. So there was a study done in 1974 where they polled uh, most of the universities in the uh, United States and said, what's your English requirement? Uh, what's your your introductory writing requirement? And most uh, universities answer, well, we have one semester of writing uh, required of all freshmen. So they repeat this uh, this survey about 30 years later to see what's happened. And, uh, the gist of the empirical data is the number of writing requirements have doubled in that period of time. Uh, but yet we also have all this other evidence that writing's not getting better. In fact, it's getting worse. So, uh, the diagnosis of poor writing skills is to make people take more and more classes in writing, but it's not actually doing any improvement. So we come up with an alternative theory, and the theory here is that it's actually the departments that are lobbying to get themselves inserted into the gen ed curriculum. So English is uh, the clearest evidence because we have the best data there, but you start seeing uh, similar types of signs in foreign languages. So 20 or 30 years ago, you had to take one semester of Spanish. Now it's two or three semesters of Spanish. And it just so happens that foreign languages are also declining in popularity as majors. Or they work themselves into the gen ed curriculum with they, they have this uh, uh, system of courses that are often referred to as first year experiences. And this is uh, you enter in freshman year. It's not really in any subject matter, but it's this general uh, type of a class about uh, cultural knowledge and exchange and uh, university life st- study habits. All of these tend to be taught by professors in humanities disciplines that are declining in enrollment and declining in their own majors themselves. So uh, I think really the mechanism that we show here and to the best about of data that we can bring to bear on it is that uh, less and less popular majors are basically lobbying to get themselves inserted into the higher ed curriculum. Then all of a sudden, you can mandate that students take your classes. Uh, they have to spend one to two years in the university. There's money attached to it. That money in turn uh, returns to your department as kind of a butts and seats type of a measure. And that means you can hire more faculty.
2: And I want to add to that. I mean, he's right. Like he's – we basically – there's lots things like external funding and so on. And so the more financially vulnerable department is, the more likely its classes appear as a gen ed, like over time. Sounds like rent-seeking, right? But it's it's not just – you know, oh, well, that's too bad. You had took English classes. This is positively evil. Like professors should feel really, really bad about themselves. Like if you like, like pray to your God for forgiveness for doing (laughs) this, right? Because College is really expensive, especially if we're supposed to be concerned about like social justice, especially for poor students who like can barely afford to go. And you're basically saying, I'm going to force you to spend thousands of hours of your time and tens of thousands of dollars taking a class for my benefit rather than for yours so I can get more money and I can have more, a higher salary and have graduate students who serve me and feel good about myself. If you're doing that, you're a horrible person. <laughs> like You should quit your job and go work for Geico and do something <laughs> right. productive in the world. Right. So Jen, Ed, Gen Ed rent seeking is evil and almost everyone does it. And you know what? They know they do it. Cause you, if you've been to these meetings anecdotally, they say like, I mean, when I was at Brown university, remember we uh, pitched to the, um, uh, to the economics department, let's have a PPE concentration. We a bunch of students have independently asked for it. We're not even spearheading it ourselves. We're just like their spokespeople. And we went up to the econ department head and he said, no way we'll lose students. We'll lose money. Yeah, well, we're still at lunch. Let's talk about some other stuff. I, we've been in meetings where people say, "Oh, well, we, you know, we need to like have our major here because uh, we need more money." You know, I, at Georgetown, I should say, we don't have that same funding model that most schools have, where you get money per butts and seats, and we have the opposite thing happening. I'm, I'm on the gen ed committees there, where people are like, "Can we offload our gen eds right. onto others? So we don't have to staff them because, like, you know, we don't want to staff the philosophy requirement because we we just want to spend it on our own things we care about." And the reason is not because they're especially noble at Georgetown, It's just because there's no money attached to it like so if anything you spend money educating people
0: now the last chapter you we kind of this big question comes up about universities and sort of what they're for we have public universities we have private universities and we I mean some of these things are a product of funding of, of government- backed student loans to some extent but I think you could also see institutional dysfunction without the government funding sure. these things right like the student evaluations for example um, but should we even be talking about the purposes of university is my first question, and whether or not we should even be funding it on a public level to kind of start rolling some of this back? Uh, I mean, should we view education as a as a public good in this thing that we need to sort of fix uh, how we're doing this and maybe have the government come in and fix this stuff, or I mean there's a lot of incentives here that are out of whack, and it's hard to fix, so maybe the first thing we do is take away the government funding and and start start some other processes going.
1: I think there's a broad question here. Uh, who are universities answerable to? Uh, who are they responsive to? And if they're publicly financed, one of the answers to that is the taxpayers. Second are the actual students that are going in and paying, uh, paying tuition. So as what Jay was just saying, if you're requiring students to spend tens of thousands of dollars on classes that they don't need just to keep uh, a higher number of faculty employed, make sure that they have uh, cushy jobs, that's probably unethical. If you're doing the same thing, if you're taking tax dollars that are ostensibly servicing this high-minded ideal of creating a more educated populace, which is how education funding's always sold. But then you're turning it around and really using it as kind of a jobs program for people who study 15th century poetry or uh, post-colonial puppeteering or all these uh, uh, kind of weird little fringe niche Hobbies that may be perfectly enjoyable for some of the people that do them, but you ask the question, what is this really delivering in terms of uh, a value, not even to society at large, but just the students that are attending this university? You start getting into questions of uh, do we have a misalignment in the allocation of funds? And these are not only public finance questions, they're ethical questions uh as well, because the general direction of this type of thing, it's from uh people that are are, are less economically empowered, it's from first-generation college students, it's 17, 18, 19-year-olds that uh have very little in terms of income other than maybe what their parents uh provide them. That are being used to subsidize the uh, uh, the careers of of like a, a mid age philosophy professor or an English professor or chemistry professor, uh, who are um, are basically living a very comfortable upper middle class uh, lifestyle. Uh, teaching niche subject matters, teaching courses that uh, maybe aren't delivering on that supposed claim of the public good that uh, they're used to justify themselves.
2: Yeah, a good way to put it is the last last chapter of the book, we give about seven or so possible justifications for universities, um, including why they should be government financed. And rather than saying, no, they shouldn't or shouldn't be, we just kind of give a checklist of like, here's what it would take to prove that it should be government financed and also Even if you think it should, there's a question of like, do you have too much or too little? So you might think, ah, there's a reason to have, there's a reason to have, say, public financing of roads, because as we all know, no one would build the roads without them. But it doesn't follow that you should build this road here at this time. There's still a question of like, on the margin, where are we? Uh, And we don't really take a stance on that. but We do say it would be difficult to show this rather than that. And no one's really done it. You know, so it could follow that maybe, maybe the government should spend, say, you know, 150 billion dollars a year financing universities, and we're so, so we should just cut it by 75 billion. It could be that it should spend another 100 billion, but it takes work to show that, and people are very averse to actually doing that work, which is because they don't actually care about justice. Because what the reason they really don't. Because if they did, they would say, "Oh, I don't." You know, government budgets are limited, and we could be spending this hundred extra billion dollars giving aid to mothers with dependent children rather than helping to reinsure sinecures for like upper middle class, uh, like intellectual hobbyists. But if you say that to most faculty and most administrators, they're like, how dare you even say that there's a trade-off?" which shows that they lack even a minimal level of moral seriousness.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.